Our scripture comes to us today from Matthew 7, verses 1 to 6, and verse 12. Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. In verse 12, so... Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is God's word. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Thanks to Ashley and Lauren for that. Uh, We are, as most of you know, in the middle of a, a series. My name is Jonathan, by the way, one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're in the middle of a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Heather read to you from Matthew chapter 7, uh, which is the point at which we are at in the series. We're into the third chapter of the sermon, and this series will actually take us through uh, Resurrection Sunday, aka Easter, uh, in a few weeks. Uh, So if you have a worship folder, on one side of the insert you should have received is the scripture passage, and on the other side is the outline. Uh, so I invite you to follow along with me as we, as we go through the outline. A couple of reminders, and these are things that Drew has been reminding us of week in and week out, uh, so hopefully they have sunk in by now, but it, just in case they haven't, uh, this is Jesus' vision for the kingdom. Uh, it's not a set of rules or ethics to be obeyed, but it, it's a picture of life lived in his kingdom. Remember, this is a new way of living. This is us being introduced as foreign citizens, if you will, into uh, the immigration process of living as citizens of the kingdom. You'll recall Jesus in John chapter 3 telling Nicodemus, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. So what's it mean to be in the kingdom? It means living out the Sermon on the Mount. But that's only going to happen to the degree that we give up power over ourselves and surrender to the power of that Jesus has over us, or claims over us, he's either Lord or he's not, right? And this is not the legalistic morality of good people, as we've already seen. This is not pharisaical righteousness. This is a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And I think, given especially the last two weeks, I I don't know about you, uh, but I think we can come to the conclusion that this sermon calls us to such an incredibly countercultural way of living uh, that we, it, it would appear impossible. I mean, you, you've listened to the last two weeks, at least I have, and I walk away going, that's impossible. I could never do that. And I'm thankful Drew does not leave us with, wow, I stink and I need to just repent, but he called us to rejoice. Not just to repent, but to rejoice also. To rejoice in the power of the gospel. So if you're here and you're a Christian, then the scriptures say Christ in you, the hope of glory, is changing you. He, he, is, he is transforming you. And Him in you produces power to live out what we've been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. And as we'll see, we need a reminder that a righteousness 
that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees is only possible through an experience of grace. It is, as we've been saying, faith energized by love or faith energized through love. And we're going to see that again this morning. Uh, Jesus restates that for us in, in verse 12 of our passage. So let me just point out to you the, the outline as we go through here. Uh, first, the divine tape recorder. I'll give you a little more insight into that in, in a, a few minutes. Uh, what does Jesus mean in the first two verses by judging? And what does he not mean? Because we've, we've got to look at really both sides of that coin. Secondly, uh, how do we get clear vision? Uh, do you have clear vision? Or are you blinded? And what tends to blind us versus free us from our blindness? As we'll see, uh, do you tend to think of yourself as full of specks or full of logs, planks, beams, or uh, sawdust in, in your, in your uh, field of vision? And then finally, the gospel and the golden rule. Uh, how does the golden rule invite us into the gospel? How does it connect to the gospel? And how does Jesus invite us into a life of incarnating through that? So those three things that we want to take a look at this morning. So first, the divine tape recorder. What, what does Jesus mean and not mean? Our culture loves to quote the first two verses of this passage, right? What are they? Judge not, right? Don't judge. We hear people say things like, uh, don't judge me. Don't criticize me. You need to tolerate those who don't agree with you. What right do you have to judge another person? The funny thing about that is, right, we, we do that, we say that out loud, and then we go home and we judge, right, in the dark, in secret. Oh, I can't, I can't believe this. You know, we'll, we'll, do it, we'll do it behind closed doors. So what does Jesus mean? The, the word that he uses is not so much judge as it is condemn. A better translation might be, condemn not that you be not condemned. Uh, The, I forget his name, but he's the president of uh, an organization many of you have heard of. It's called World Vision. And he wrote a book called The Hole in Our Gospel. And in that book, he cites this study that was done, I think it was by Gallup. And it was a poll that was taken among 16 to 29-year-olds. What are the most, what are the words, what are the adjectives, what are the characteristics when you think of Christians... What are the first things that come to mind? The two most popular answers were judgmental and hypocrite. Yikes, as I read this passage, because Jesus says, judge not and you hypocrite. Not in a good way, right? So it's kind of scary how the church has come to be, in many respects, characterized by this type of living. Dallas Willard explains it this way. When we condemn another person, we really communicate that he or she is in some deep and just possibly irredeemable way bad, bad as a whole, and to be rejected. Listen, in our eyes, the condemned is among the discards of human life. We don't say this, but this is oftentimes how we react. He says, we sentence that person to exclusion by our condemnation. The tense of the verb Jesus uses here is one of continual or habitual activity. So he's telling us, he's calling us to avoid a critical spirit, a mindset of of conditional judgment, of habitual critique, right? Now, if you're like me, that hurts. Because if you know me, you know 
that I tend to have a problem with habitual critique. It comes out through cynicism and sarcasm. But rest assured, it's a critique. I just use humor to make myself feel better and make other people laugh. But really what I'm doing is I'm critiquing. I'm judging. Uh, and, and Drew is every week, and it's, it's, I believe, starting to work. He's praying for me. God, take sarcasm out of Jonathan. Replace it with hope. Replace it with encouragement. Encouraging words. Okay? Rather than that. So the question for us is, and I had to ask myself this, where or what areas are we most prone to exhibit a spirit of continual judgment? Critique comes most naturally to you. This is a way to ask it. It comes most naturally to you in what areas of your life? Okay? So this week, uh, here's what I do. Excuse me. I was in Publix the other day, and I'm on one end of the store, right? And clear on the other end, I can hear this piercing just awful screaming. And I literally, when I walked in and went to one end of the store, I'm thinking, where is that child? And how can I position myself to stay as far away from them and whoever they're with, who's obviously not a good parent? Uh, you know, how can I get away from them? So as I'm making my way toward the middle of the store, you know, trying to avoid the middle, because those aisles are where all the processed food is. You got to stay on the outside, right? Uh, that's supposed to be a joke. Um, And I get to the middle of the store, and there's the child with the parent or parents. And she's just screaming bloody murder. Now, my children, I'm thinking, this is what I'm thinking. They would never do that. If they did, I'd beat the snot out of them right there in the store. Obviously, she's not being beaten, at least enough, or else she wouldn't be doing that. But, you know, that's what I do. So think about the areas in which you're, you're most prone to do that. Why is it so easy for us to do that? And here, here's where it really gets nasty, okay? We have a built-in arrogance that says constantly, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. And when we condemn, we place ourselves above the other person. We distance ourselves from them because, after all, we don't, we don't want to understand them. Right? We talk at them. We quickly dispense advice. We treat people around us as problems that need to be fixed rather than human beings that need to be pursued. Right? What's really going on is our desire to be God-like. And it's so pervasive that we exalt our opinions and judgments above even God Himself. That's what Jesus is saying. Judge not so that you be not judged by God himself. I mean, isn't that disgusting? Or as we say in my house, disgusting. We say that's disgusting. But the most amazing part is that we hate being judged, right? I cannot stand to be condemned or criticized. Hate it. In fact, I'll find every way to justify that what I did doesn't deserve it, right? We want to receive mercy. We want to be understood. We want compassion but only for ourselves. For everyone else, we're slow to give mercy. We are unwilling to take time to understand them. And we would rather give them a good dose of honesty, right? Honesty for everybody else, compassion for me, right? This is how it works. So clearly, there's a problem. 
But we've also got to see what Jesus doesn't mean because it's easy to misunderstand. That's trying to get at what Jesus means. There's a ghost up here at the door. It's the wind. It's the Holy Spirit trying to get in. Open the door, somebody. So what does Jesus not mean? Let's look. What does Jesus not mean? Let me quote to you from uh, John Stott who says this about this passage. The command you judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. Jesus does not tell us to cease to be men by suspending our critical powers, which help us distinguish us from animals, but to renounce the presumptuous ambition to be God by setting ourselves up as judges. He doesn't mean we never make evaluations or call sin what it is. In fact, in verse 6, you read down a few verses, you see him say, don't give what is holy to dogs and don't throw your pearls before pigs. I mean, clearly we have to make a judgment call there, right? So he's not saying suspend all judgments. He's calling our attention to the standard or measurement that we use in judging others. The standard you use, verse 2, will be the same standard used on you. When I think about that, I get really scary. Because for me, it has to be perfect. And exactly the way that I would do it. If it's not, then woe be unto you. Right? So Jesus is saying, if that's what you use, Jonathan, that's how it's going to be given back to you. The issue isn't, If you make value judgments, it's how, right, you make value judgments. So what's motivating you? How high is your bar? Where do you find yourself most commonly applying that bar? You've got parenting. Clearly, they are not good parents, or that child would not act that way. Rather than maybe go over there and, hey, how are you doing today? Or try and engage the child. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to strategically place myself on opposite ends of the store from those people. But clearly, they're not parenting right. Or grades. How high is your bar? I mean, you know, for some parents, if you bring home less than a 95, go back and try it again. Say what? Last time I checked, A and B were both considered above average. But somehow we've lost that and, you know, sort of like anything below a 93, that's average. Go back and try it again. Get an A. I did get an A. No, you didn't. You know, an A is 97 or 98. We've got to be careful there. Because what if somebody came beside you and started grading your work? I mean, that's really scary. Or personal appearance. Obviously something that I struggle in. Don't have a real high bar. But some of us do, let's be honest. Got, well, you know, as I said a few weeks ago, I do tend to have a high bar. It just depends on where I'm going, you know, during the day. But probably though, the, the most frightening illustration of this is where I get the title for this point, the divine tape recorder. Uh, it's a story told by uh, a pastor in New York City named Tim Keller. He says, In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, listen to this. Every time you say or think a critical thought, a little divine tape recorder just behind your left ear starts silently recording. 
Day after day, all your personal rules for living, all your muttered curses slowly accumulate. Think of all the free advice you offer other drivers in traffic. Everything you've ever said about other people. At Judgment Day, this lengthy tape is played back and compared with your life. Could God be fairer? Your own words will be your judge. Just the thought makes me break out in a sweat. I'm sweating just reading it. Okay? I mean, seriously. Our words matter. And if that doesn't silence our spirit of condemnation, I don't know what will. But we've got to go on. If that's what judging is, what's it create? So often our judging blinds us. And this is where Jesus goes next in verses 3 to 5. Because judging tends to minimize our sin, right, and maximize everybody else's. So, clear vision. Jesus speaks in verses 3 to 5 of specks in our brother's eyes and planks or boards or logs in ours. So there's a problem, and then Jesus gives us a solution in verse 5. So let's look at the problem. The answer to Jesus' question in verse 3, which is this, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? The answer is, we don't notice the log in our own eye because we are blinded by the log. Right? That's the link. When we judge, our logs become specks, and the specks of others become logs, in our own estimation. As long as we have the log, our vision is distorted. So how is our judgmental mindset blinding us? We become propped up by our own self-righteousness. The more habitual our condemnation of others, the more inflated our confidence in our own insight becomes, right? The problem is we can't see it. It's kind of like bad breath. Now, i got to tell you this really funny story uh, that some of you have heard before, but if you haven't heard it before, I promise you'll enjoy it, okay? There's a friend that uh, Drew and I have, used to serve at uh, Trinity Our mother church in Lakeland, his name's Ted Sin, he has five children? Five children. And he was home one day with one of his children. I forget which one it is, because he's got five of them. But anyway, uh, they're kind of getting started on their day, and she starts saying, what that mail? And Ted, which is what's that smell in, you know, three-year-old, two-year-old talk, right? What that mail? And so... Ted starts investigating. He sniffs her diaper. No, she's fine. He walks around and checks and sees maybe the, the, the dog used the bathroom in the house. I don't know. Maybe the trash needs to be taken out. And so they're going throughout their day, and throughout the day she keeps repeating that. What a mel? What a mel? And Ted is really starting to get frustrated. You know? He's, what, what is the problem? So it gets to the end of the day, right? And uh, it came to his attention, or he recalled at least the fact that he had given his daughter some Slim Jims, you know, good, nutritious food while, while mom was away, right? And so he, he got to thinking about that, and they're laying on the bed watching TV at the end of the day, and Ted goes, hmm, Maddie, or I forget which child it was, he said, uh, take your hand, do this. And she went, Damel, hmm. And, you know, for me, that's a great illustration of, in that case, literally bad breath, right? But if you've ever been around somebody that has, the medical term is chronic halitosis, 
I do remember that from, well, I didn't even take anatomy class. I don't know where I heard that. But anyway, that's what it's called, okay? If you've ever been around somebody that has that, whoo, it's bad because it's hard for, you know, you, you want to say, dude, you, you need a breath mint or a Tic Tac or some gum or something. But the problem is the person that has it often doesn't even, they, they don't know unless they, but who walks around doing that, you know? So it is a huge problem, self-righteousness. Clearly, the, <clears throat> the log in our own eye props us up and causes us to think, wow, our insight is much greater than everybody else's. But notice, notice Jesus, Jesus doesn't deny the speck in our brother's eye. Clearly, it needs to be addressed and removed. But how do we do that? One commentator says, the hypocrite's error is not in his diagnosis, but in his failure to apply to himself the criticism he so meticulously applies to his brother. So Jesus isn't telling us to never again look at the sin of our brother or sister and evaluate their behavior. But he is warning us, don't even think about confronting someone in their sin until you've been honest with yourself about yours. Right? And this drastically, this drastically changes the way we confront one another about our sins. A good diagnostic to this would be, ask yourself this question, who's the biggest sinner you know? Now, if I'm honest, and if we're honest, if we're parents, most of us will say, my kids. Gosh, I'm telling you. If Ellie says one more selfish comment, if Ethan is unkind one more time, I mean, holy Toledo, they are sinners. Big, huge sinners. But if you read the Apostle Paul, read, read some of his earlier letters, he talks about himself as being a sinner, right? But as he gets older and older and older, you get to one of the last letters he wrote to his disciple Timothy, and he calls himself the chief of sinners. And so you and I have to get to the point where our answer to that question is me. Who's the biggest sinner you know? Well, I am. I am because I know myself better than I know anybody else. But I want you to think about how quick we parents are to locate the tiniest mistakes or shortcomings in our children, all the while ignoring our beams. C.S. Lewis has this great statement about how he says, you know, some some families that I observe, they, parents treat their children so barbarically that it would never fly. They would never treat a perfect stranger that way. And yet they treat their own children like that. And wow, you know, it's like I'm looking in a mirror as I'm reading that. No wonder they can't wait to get out of the house. Freedom, you know. So what's Jesus' solution to that? Look at verse 5. Clearly the problem is you and I elevate our own understanding because we're blinded to our logs jesus says there are two things that need to happen first he says take the log out of your own eye paul miller calls this beam research i love that beam research so you and i've got to do some beam research it means we use the other person's sin as a mirror to reveal ours we start asking this question you know that really bothered me I wonder if I do the same thing. Jesus wants to lead us into self-reflection and to use our inner lives, particularly our weaknesses, 
as a foundation for helping and confronting others in their sin. Now, what's that produce? It produces a much less caustic, more gentle, more humble approach to other people. It minimizes our judgmental mindsets because we readily look for our own guilt in that particular area. It's profound. And what happens? Jesus says, then you will see clearly. Our vision becomes clearer. The irony is, the shock and magnitude of the other's sin, oh, I can't believe that they would do that. You know, you ever, you ever hear news about somebody? I can't believe they would do that. I, what's, what's underneath that is, I would never do that. Oh, yes, you would. You might do it differently. It might be in a different situation. But unless you and I begin to see, we are capable of all the same stuff. We will not approach people in the way Jesus calls us to. We begin to change. He says, you will see clearly to help your brother to take the speck out of their eye. And the change in us produces a tempered, humble approach to others. We become the kind of people who are, one of my favorite verses in the scriptures, one of, my, one of the hardest things for me to do, we become slow to speak, quick to listen people. Okay, is that hard for you? I hate it. I'd much rather talk because, after all, what I have to say is very important. You need to listen. Right? I mean, you hear how arrogant that is? That's arrogant. That's arrogant. But notice the rest of the verse. Jesus doesn't want us never to confront or be honest with others about their sin or ways in which they have offended us. But we can't do that until we've seen our own sinfulness. Now, why is this so hard? If you've done this, okay, if you've done this, if you've tried this, you know it's not easy. I'm so scared of this so-called beam research because I'm scared of discovering how messed up I am. I'm no longer seen as an authority because I give up the need to explain my point of view. I don't always have to talk and tell somebody else what I think. I, I, I lose oftentimes. In fact, if I begin to stop and ask questions, other people might get the wrong idea about me, like, what, you condone their way of life? You condone their sin? And it's scary because if we're honest, here's what happens. It feels like a death, doesn't it? I mean, you're giving up this power that you have to kind of spread your wisdom, the fountain of wisdom. I mean, I'm 32. I mean, it ain't a fountain, it ain't a drip at this point in time. Maybe when I get to be Papa Savant's age, then I can give advice. But not when I'm 32. Maybe I just need to shut my mouth and listen. Jesus is guiding us to do that. Now, how can we begin to be people who live like this? It is such a tall order to take the beam out of our own eye first. But it's also super hard to pursue other people in their sin to remove their specks. The great news is Jesus gives us guidance on how to consistently do it in verse 12. He gives us a rule, right? Jesus' answer for dealing with this is incarnation. And the golden rule is an invitation into this type of life. Now, you're probably familiar with the noun use of incarnation. What's the incarnation? It's Jesus becoming a man, right? Leaving heaven, coming to earth. 
But the verb use of this word, to incarnate, is not as familiar to us. Why is that? Because we stink at it. We don't like doing it. We don't want to learn how to do it. Because, as I mentioned above, it it feels like a death. So there's two things as we finish that I, I, I just want to call you to, to examine your own heart in, look at as Jesus gives us the golden rule. It's a rule that many others have kind of taken on. And if you, if you say this rule to somebody who's not a Christian, they say, yeah, that's a great way of living. I try to do that. Really? Yeah. Why? What's the motivation behind? What creates in you the desire to do it? So what are the steps of the golden rule? Jesus gives us a guide to incarnation. He says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. He tells us to think first and then do. But notice that order. Jesus says we need to reflect before we act. Why is this so important? Well, thinking first and entering someone else's world is such a foreign concept to us. And we don't think about what it's like to be in the other person's shoes. And so foot and mouth disease sets in, right? I have it. I'm, 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 I'm the worst at it. We speak first. We think later. You know, let me, let me give my advice. Oops. That probably wasn't the best thing to say. And then we got to go back around on the other side of that and fix our junk that we laid out there. Jesus is inviting us into a life of incarnation, a life of asking ourselves, how would I feel if I was in that person's shoes or in their situation? What would I want? Right? He's calling us to move toward other people with the goal of understanding and entering their world rather than constantly critiquing and judging it. Now, I had a hernia operation in September, and I got put back in the hospital because narcotics are bad. And my body does not like them. And I had some really good nurses in that three, four days in there, and I had some really not nice nurses. And I was reflecting afterward uh, with Drew after I got out, you know, and I was saying, the unkindness that these people have to deal with It's just amazing because they have like eight people they're trying to look after, all of whom have the worst medical condition on the planet. What I have is worse than what that guy down the hall has. So you need to come here and talk to me. Give me attention. My needs are better, greater than everybody else's. And when they don't meet them, we begin judging them. We begin critiquing them. And... I'll tell you a story. I I got a chance to uh, watch a a friend who's a a doctor work this past week, and I asked he and the folks that work with him, have any of you ever had surgery like the ones that that you perform on a daily basis? Nobody raised their hand. I said, can you imagine what it would be like to lay flat on that table and know in 30 minutes we're going to take you in and we're going to crack open the middle of your chest... And then we're going to stick tubes and hands, I watched, and needles and all other kinds of things in there, but it's going to be okay. I mean, seriously. They've got to be scared to death. And my friend told me that he has known nurses in his time that have been experiencing great personal turmoil at home 
their, their, their husband's cheating on them or they're going through a divorce or their children are rebellious or whatever the case may be. And yet they leave that at the door and they come in and all they care about are the patients that they're, that they're uh, overseeing and caring for. It's as if to say, right now, all I care about is you and what, what would you want? What, what's it like to be in your shoes at this moment? That's the kind of life Jesus is calling us into. And God loved us by incarnating in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, only by experiencing the incarnation of Jesus will we find the doorway into a life of love. Only a faith in His life, death, and resurrection will produce the kind of transformation that results in a new character. A life of incarnating with others is a life of becoming the gospel. Every opportunity to get into someone else's world is a tiny death because we're moving away from safety toward need, from comfort toward hurt and pain. And why? What's our motivation? Because that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. Philippians 2 says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not account quality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Or Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That is the complete opposite from our culture's insistence on getting in touch with yourself, learning to love yourself, accepting yourself. All about yourself, right? The writer of Hebrews says Jesus had to be made like us in every way. He had to get into our shoes in every respect so that he might win salvation for us. He had to become one of us. And now... When we pray to Him, He understands. He didn't stand far off and judge us. He drew near. He became like us. He put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood, right? So that He could give His life in exchange for our sin. He took the curse that was ours. And He did that by incarnating, by putting on flesh, by getting in our shoes. And so Jesus' incarnation makes it possible for us to gain true life and true freedom, and to enter into this life of love. So let's ask Him, let's pray this morning, asking Him to make us people who can love like Him. How did He love? He loved compassionately, He loved honestly, and He loved to the, to the praise and glory of the Father. So let's, let's ask Him to do that same work in our hearts. Lord Jesus, we worship You this morning because, as we've said so many times, You are the most beautiful human being that's ever lived in the way that you love those that hated you, in the way that you came to rescue those who were your, your enemies. We thank you that you loved us by incarnating with us, by getting inside our world, by, by stepping into our shoes to try and learn what it was like to beat us so that you could save us. And as we begin to sing a song to that effect, I pray that you would work into our hearts to make us people who for your glory and because of what you have done for us 
would produce in our hearts the kind of love, the kind of others-centered, sacrificial living uh, that incarnates, that gets down to ask, what, what would I want? And that that would produce beautiful fruit, beautiful works, to the glory and praise of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The promise of this benediction is that what we just sang uh, to take to the world uh, and know that you must become what you want to save, that's hard work. It's really, really hard to do. The promise of this benediction is as you go, you go with his blessing to enable you to do that. So receive this now as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.